I was born and grew up in Ohio. If you know anything about the state of Ohio, you would know what chilly fall Saturday afternoons are meant for. When I was a young boy, I would sit with the older men and watch football on television. The only football game of any significance, in the opinion of the more experienced men, was Ohio State and whoever Ohio State was matched up against on that particular Saturday afternoon. If it happened to be the third Saturday afternoon of November, then it was the game, Ohio State versus that team up north. It was deeper than tradition. It was more of a spiritual event, unspoken, but universally and devoutly observed. On the rare occasion where I was out and about with my parents on a Saturday afternoon instead of glued to a TV set, the Ohio State game would be playing on the car's AM radio. My dad would subconsciously slow down and lean in toward the radio when the announcer began calling a play so that he wouldn't miss anything over the radio static. If you were out of earshot of a radio for some reason, such as at a gas station pumping gas, all you needed to do was ask anyone in close proximity, what's the score? No need to mention what game you were referring to. In Ohio, there was then, as there is now, only one, and more times than not, you would get an update, something like this. The Buckeyes have the ball in their own 46, third and two, Bucks 24, Boilermakers 10. Seven minutes, 46 seconds to go in the third quarter. So that was the environment I grew up in. Then, as there is today, there are only two true sports in Ohio, football and spring football. Before the arrival of the immortal Art Schleister in 1978, football at Ohio State, and by extension, football throughout the entire state of Ohio, consisted of running a power eye offense, which meant focusing maximum effort on running the football straight up the middle behind the strength of an oversized, extremely powerful offensive line. Everyone knew that 80% or more of Ohio State's offensive plays would be this, consistent and effective. It was the three yards and a cloud of dust approach which legendary coach Woody Hayes perfected. The sheer physical size of Ohio State's perennial crop of 300-pound linemen made it seem as just about anyone could pick up three yards in that cloud of dust that the offensive line churned up. Although I was athletic, I was the smallest boy in my grade. Regardless, I, like every other boy, was expected to play organized football. It was Ohio, after all. At age 11, it was no tackle, flag football, which meant that there were no helmets, no pads, nothing but your clothes and a belt with flags hanging from it that was held around your waist with Velcro, which, when pulled off, indicated a tackle. Like the other boys, I already had a good grasp of the fundamentals from hours of playing pickup games on the playground. I could throw and kick and catch as well as most of the others. Given my lack of physical prowess, 
it meant that I was relegated to being a defensive back on my assigned flag football team. That way, my coach figured I could still participate, but not be a liability for the actual performance during the game. Our first game, I spent the first half on the sidelines, pacing back and forth while I watched my teammates getting absolutely demolished. This was entirely because the other team was led by no other than Kirby Johnson. Kirby, who, even though he was only 11 years old too, was at least six inches taller and 30 pounds heavier than me. Oh, he wasn't the biggest kid on the field. Both teams had a generous complement of well-fed, stocky kids. But still, Kirby was a man among boys. There was no stockiness about him. He was all muscle, svelte, athletic, and fast. Kirby played quarterback where, on most plays, he just kept the ball and ran by his offensive line and right through our defense. Kirby was a stud, and it was obvious as our opponents ran up the score. Everybody knew why. His dad, who was also the opposing team's coach, had been a linebacker at Ohio State, which made him sort of a celebrity in the area. He had settled in our little farm town for some reason after his college career was over. Kirby's dad had trained his son for this from the moment Kirby was born. Us kids knew how good Kirby was from all the recesses we had played with him on the playground. And during this game, all the hours of practice showed up as Kirby made score after score against us. By the third quarter, Kirby's ability to run around, through, and mostly right over our team had taken its toll on our first string. Our starters were bruised and banged up even though actual tackling was prohibited. Us reserves, as we were politely referred to by our coach, were being liberally subbed into the game. We were under no delusions. We knew that we were outclassed and outmatched. Fortunately, with a huge lead, Kirby's dad had decided to switch to working on his son's passing game instead of running right over our defense. Even though we already knew Kirby was an elite rusher, his passes were near-perfect spirals which seemed to fall right into his waiting receiver's hands. I was finally subbed into the game in the fourth quarter as a defensive back. I don't remember, but at the time we were behind by something like a zillion to nothing. By this point, most of the players for both teams were bench warmers, except that Kirby was still back there taking snaps and working on his passing efficiency. On my very first play in organized football, Kirby lofted a pass on a post route to a wide receiver, the receiver I was guarding. It was another ideal spiral, which I managed to time perfectly by leaping in front of his receiver at the last second and intercepting the pass. At first, I froze. I didn't know what to do. I was just so excited that I caught the ball. I remember standing there for what felt like an eternity before I began to run, and run I did. As I streaked up the field, no one was ahead of me. I remember seeing my teammates along the sidelines, all screaming and jumping up and down and urging me on as I ran down the field as fast as I could. Unfortunately, that's all I remember. My recollections of what happened next are based on what other players, players from both teams, told me after the fact. Being small, people expected me to be fast, and I was, but I wasn't fast enough. 
I had about 40 yards to run to the end zone. And in that time, Kirby, who had thrown the interception, ran me down and laid me out by driving me into the turf, even though tackling was prohibited. After driving my body into the ground, I was told that Kirby stood up, himself now bleeding profusely from broken teeth caused by the collision between us. Kirby then reached down and tried to pry the ball out of my hands while I lay there, knocked unconscious. Apparently, I had a death grip on that football. After Kirby couldn't wrestle the ball away from me, he reached down and yanked the flag off my belt, therefore officially tackling me. When I started to come to, I remember seeing all the dads huddled around me murmuring about how they needed to get me to the hospital. A few feet away, I saw Kirby, himself covered in blood, standing there with his dad screaming at him not for laying me out cold in an obvious violation of all the rules of flag football, but for throwing the interception. My dad scooped me up in his arms and carried me to the car. While he rushed me to the emergency room across town, I tried to hold a towel against my head to stop the blood gushing out of my mangled left ear, the ear which had taken the brunt of Kirby's teeth slamming into them all while I was drifting in and out of consciousness. In the hospital, I lay there in a state of semi-consciousness while the emergency room doctor cleaned up my ear and then used 27 stitches to stitch it all back together again. I was drugged up on a cocktail of painkillers, so I slept the rest of Saturday away. I woke up completely conscious on Sunday morning, only to experience an intense pain that was accompanied by a high fever in an ear which was swollen up thanks to a nasty infection which had set in overnight. That meant another trip back to the hospital where a different doctor cut my ear open and literally used a scalpel to scrape as much of the pus off my ear's cartilage as he could reach. Then, gallons of disinfectant were poured all over the whole bloody mess before the tatters of my ear were once again stitched back together. I missed the next week of school. The pain medication kept me drowsy and unable to concentrate. When I finally returned, I was sporting a turban-like dressing which wrapped all around my head to protect my ear and the now 36 stitches which was holding it together. Oddly, I was treated like some sort of celebrity. I had been credited not only with the interception, but with being the guy who had knocked two of Kirby's front teeth out, something that many of my classmates had fantasized doing since he had bullied most of them at one point or another. My celebrity status soon faded as the story of my interception became old news. Kirby and I never talked about it. He ran with the sports jocks while I ran with the science geeks, so our paths rarely crossed. I watched from a distance as Kirby grew from being known and feared as a bully into the celebrated star of our high school football team. He led our ragtag group of farm boys to our first league title in nearly 30 years, our freshman year. Then the next year, when we were sophomores, we won a division title, again behind the strength of Kirby's running and throwing. After that, Kirby transferred to a large parochial high school a Central Ohio football powerhouse for his junior and senior years. 
I, I never played organized football again. One game, one play, one interception, and one football story to reminisce over when I got together with my grade school buddies. Then, one day, over 20 years later, I ran into Kirby at a diner in Columbus. I was walking in about the same time he was. We bumped into each other in the entryway, where there was that awkward moment of us recognizing each other, but not really knowing what to say. We ended up shaking hands and agreeing that, since both of us were alone, we would sit together at the mostly empty counter of this Frisch's big boy, so that we could catch up, as Kirby put it. That awkwardness from the entryway had spilled over to the counter, where we each perused the menu, not really knowing how to break the ice. I was stunned to see how Kirby had aged so much, much more than one would have expected. Under a neatly trimmed beard and a military-style haircut, he had the look of an older man, even accounting for the 20 or so years since I'd last saw him up close our sophomore year of high school, when he was the star quarterback of our football team. I couldn't help but notice that Kirby also had a slight limp, along with a general stiffness in all of his movements. After we had had cups of steaming coffee in front of us, and after we had both placed our orders with the waitress, Kirby turned toward me and frowned. Even though the years hadn't been kind to him, he was still a physically imposing figure. Then, Kirby reached up and removed a mouthpiece from his mouth. Attached were two false teeth. It was the replacement for the teeth that Kirby had lost in our collision on the gridiron all those years earlier. He shook his mouthpiece before me and paused before saying, I think about you every day. Then he replaced his mouthpiece and lifted up his cup of coffee to take a sip without saying anything more. I quietly sat there trying to determine if Kirby's silence was because he was still harboring some pent-up anger toward me about losing his two front teeth, an anger which had been eating at him all these years, or if he was just like in high school, simply not interested in talking to me. I sat there wondering, why did he still have a mouthpiece and hadn't simply had the two missing teeth replaced? I was wondering about that along with thinking about what to say. Instead of speaking, I just sat there and stared at my coffee. I was pretty sure that if Kirby wanted to exact some sort of physical revenge on me, which wasn't an outlandish thought given my childhood memories of what an aggressive bully he had been, but given his apparent limp and slow gait, I was confident that I could now dodge any such attempt. Then I thought, why am I thinking this? Like I'm still in high school. That was decades ago. And here we are, just two old schoolmates, middle-aged adults now, sitting down just to reacquaint ourselves with each other. Then the waitress stopped by to refresh our coffees, which seemed to bring both of us out of our own thoughts and back to each other's presence. We both mumbled a no. Then Kirby sat his half-empty coffee cup down on the counter, turned to me and asked in a friendly tone of voice, let me see your ear. As I silently turned my head toward Kirby, he pulled a glasses case from the pocket of his blue plaid flannel shirt and put on a pair of reading glasses to inspect the scars on my ear. Hmm, Kirby remarked, 
It healed up nicely, hardly any scar at all. Kirby was right. Either by luck or by the efforts of a skilled doctor, my ear now looked relatively normal. Over the years, the scars had faded into what appeared to be nothing more than wrinkles in the folds of skin of my recomposed ear. Kirby removed his reading glasses, placed them back in the case, and then leaned back while he took another sip of coffee. Then he said, I'm glad for that. I really am. Glad for what? I asked, not really making the connection. That your ear looks okay, we replied. Thanks to the fact that Kirby was the best athlete our podunk little community had produced in a generation, I knew something about his comings and goings after he had transferred from our high school to that large parochial football powerhouse, even though it was nearly 50 miles away. Kirby continued to garner consistent mentions in the local paper were being showcased on a much larger stage, something we felt with an odd mixture of pride and envy as the hometown boy did good, too good to play with the likes of us. The last article I remember reading explained that Kirby had accepted an athletic scholarship to the University of Toledo, a mid-America conference school, still Division I, but a huge step below playing for Ohio State, which, as we all knew, was his dad's ultimate goal for Kirby. Although Kirby didn't make it to Ohio State as a football player, I did, but as just another one of the 12,000 or so incoming freshmen. Even though I was still living in central Ohio, after I went to college, I quickly lost touch with most of what was going on in my hometown, which included Kirby in his collegiate career. Then, after some chit-chat between us about our jobs, and how wet the weather had been while we were eating our dinner. A dam broke, and Kirby began asking me an endless stream of questions about everyone he remembered from our little Podunk High School. It became apparent that Kirby had lost touch with virtually everyone we knew in common. But after about 45 minutes of talking about everyone but himself, my curiosity got the better of me, so I interrupted and asked, I heard you were recruited by Toledo to play football. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I was a Toledo Rocket for a couple of years, Kirby stammered. Not satisfied, I continued to pry. So what was that like? I mean, after all, you were playing Division One. Kirby leaned back, scratched his chin, and admitted, it was hard. Everyone expected me to be the star of the team, like I had been on every team I'd played football on before that, he explained. For once, everyone was at least as big, as fast, as strong as me. Oh, in high school, especially playing for Catholic, I took some hard hits, hits that hurt. But once I got to Toledo, every hit was hard. And then, when I was knocked out, a concussion, I was benched for a few weeks. I just sat there watching while I waited for this constant ringing in my head to go away. It was then that I realized just how much I must have been hurting all those other kids over the years. Those kids who were mostly smaller, weaker than me. For the first time in my life, I was feeling it. What they felt, you know? I don't know what happened. Something inside me just clicked and I just didn't want to do it anymore. So, you just didn't want to play football, I asked, trying to clarify. 
I watched quietly as Kirby searched for words to explain. Finally, it was more than that tumbled out of Kirby's mouth. I just quit. Quit the team. Then I dropped out of college. Remembering how invested Kirby's dad had been in his football career, I asked the obvious. I asked how his dad took his decision. Kirby leaned back and a grin flashed across his face as he answered, Oh, as you would expect, not well. Knowing what I did about his dad, I understood and tried to let the topic die. But after a few minutes of silent contemplation, Kirby continued, My dad, I love him and all, and I do appreciate what he was trying to do for me. But as I've gotten older, I now realize that he was doing it mostly for himself. What do you mean, I asked. Oh, he had these dreams of me being a big football star. But you were. Ah, no. Not a star high school football player, but a star football player for Ohio State. The old man was crushed when Ohio State didn't recruit me. Toledo was the best I could do. After all those years of bragging to his drinking buddies about what his son was going to do, and then it was just Toledo. But when I up and quit playing, that broke the old man. But that's still Division I, I offered. Yeah, my dad got over being upset that I didn't make it at Ohio State. And he still thought I had a shot at making pro if I just managed to become a starter at Toledo. Oh, they tried to make me a starter by converting me into a receiver. You see, I just didn't have the arm. And I was three deep on the depth chart. I had no shot at being QB, Kirby explained, just dumping out facts. But that's when I got knocked out. Who is they, I asked. Oh, the coaching staff, along with a lot of prodding from my dad. So your dad was still pushing you then? It was more than pushing. I understand it better now that I have my own kids, Kirby finally mentioned. You have kids? I exclaimed finally feeling as I was getting to know more about this man who gave me dozens of stitches and a mangled ear. Yep, Kirby said, lifting his head. Yes, I do. Kirby let a sheepish smile cross his face. Been married 14 years and we got us two boys, 9 and 12. What about you? Kirby asked in an obvious attempt to shift the conversation away from him and his family. Oh, me? I answered. I'm divorced. Five years now, but it's all good. We share custody of our two kids. My son's 11 and my daughter's 9. It's all good though, I said, trying to stop dredging up my own painful recent experience. My kids are doing well and we're both happier now, I explained, even though I lied. I don't know why I lied, but I had without hesitation. My ex-wife and her boyfriend were doing a lot better than me by all accounts. I was still alone, painfully alone even though we had been separated a long time. But I just didn't want to get into it. I didn't want to try to explain to Kirby, this guy I hadn't seen in decades. So, I assume that your boys are playing Pop Warner? I asked, referring to the youth football leagues all over the place. They're about that age, right? Oh no, Kirby said, shaking his head. Then after motioning for the waitress for another refill on his coffee, he continued. After my upbringing, I didn't want them doing anything that they didn't want to do. Oh, they both tried football, Kirby admitted, but neither one really enjoyed it much. The older one plays basketball, and it looks like the younger one's picking soccer. But the wife and I, 
we don't want either of them feeling pressure. In fact, I'm happy neither one of them is playing football. Hmm, I mumbled, trying to digest what I had just heard. Then after getting my coffee topped off, I continued. Football seemed to be the only thing that you cared about when you were in high school. It was the only thing I knew, Kirby snapped. My dad made sure of that. How's he doing? I asked, clearly referring to his dad. Ah, Kirby muttered. You could say that he's retired. Kirby's words trailed off before he paused to take another swig of coffee. Then he stared down into his cup and swished the remains around, watching them swirl, buying himself time to consider what to say next. Then, after the family and a booth a few feet away cleared out, and after both our cups of coffee had been sipped empty, he continued, He can't work anymore, Kirby explained. He's lost his balance. He can't remember anything. And, I mean, he was mean before, but now he's gotten really mean. Just picks fights with everyone. The doctor says it's probably due to all the hard hits he took playing football when he was younger. Kirby swallowed before continuing. My dad, he now lives in a nursing home. Kirby then leaned back and stared off through the order window behind the counter before continuing. Our other relatives seem happy to just forget about the mean old goat. And I, then Kirby stopped mid-sentence. I felt that it was wrong for me to say anything, even though I simultaneously felt compelled to break the tension hanging in the air. But we both just sat there, silent, while the background noise of the big boy slowly took over. Kirby suddenly continued, but in a different tone of voice, higher pitched, more forced. My dad was a bad influence on me, a real piece of work. Nobody liked him. My wife, she doesn't want him around our kids. I watched as he stared down into his coffee and shook his head. I still see him about once a month, Kirby explained. He can't remember me visiting him though. He can't remember anything about my job or even how hard I worked to make something of myself after football. The only thing he can remember is that I quit. I quit playing. You'd think after all these years, but no. That's what he calls me when I visit him, the quitter. Tears were welling up in Kirby's eyes, spilling down his cheeks as he tugged on a napkin wedged in the dispenser on the counter. Kirby's voice cracked as he strained to get his words out. He's still my dad, though, so I go and check up on him. Not knowing what to say or how to respond, I simply gave Kirby a comforting pat on the back and excused myself to visit the men's room. When I returned, Kirby had left. I asked the waitress for the check, but she told me that my friend had already paid it. I walked out into the cold damp of the evening, still hoping to find Kirby waiting in the parking lot so that I, somehow, could impart some sorts of words of sympathy. But he was nowhere to be found. I then went to my car, sat in the driver's seat, and put the key in the ignition, but for some reason, I didn't start it. Instead, I sat there for what seemed to be hours, shivering in the darkness, thinking about what I had heard about Kirby's life and about my own. I thought about why I had lied to Kirby about my own happiness. I thought about everything, and somehow, at the same time, I thought about nothing at all. <laughs>